perfect, David said, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey in the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Let's pray. Lord, your word is perfect. We desire it, Lord. More than the riches of this world, we desire, Lord, that we might be conformed into the image of your Son. And Lord, tonight before you sits a group of people who have put away any earthly pursuits this evening, any other form of entertainment that they might otherwise seek, any other appointments, and they've kept an appointment with you because your law is perfect. And in keeping it, Lord, there's great reward. I pray, Father, that there would be a wholehearted giving over to your truth. Lord, our desire is that we might know you personally, that we might walk with you, hear your voice, experience your touch. Know what it's like to have you pick us up when we fall. Jesus said your word is truth. And so, Father, though for many of us, Zephaniah is unfamiliar territory, I pray that we might love your truth, cling to your truth, and learn to extract those lessons that your Holy Spirit would give to us as we search it. In Jesus' name, amen. Zephaniah, three chapters tonight. Zephaniah was of royal lineage. We understand that from the first verse of this book. He's the great, great grandson of a great king named Hezekiah. Hezekiah was one of those guys who started believing God at his word and wanted to see the nation come back to God. And of course, he had the power to do it. He was a king, and so he could make laws that would govern the lives of people and reforms that would bring people back to the Lord their God. And Hezekiah did that. He did, the Bible said, what was right in the eyes of the Lord, more than those who were before him and more than those who came after him. He was a godly king down in Judah. As he was serving the Lord, however, the Assyrian army came against Jerusalem and threatened him. There were 185,000 of them around the city of Jerusalem, which scared Hezekiah scared him enough to fall on his face before God and tear his clothes and basically say, God, help! And God sent Isaiah the prophet. And Isaiah said, don't worry, Hez, you're going to be all right. God has heard your prayer, and God will send the Assyrians away. And sure enough, he did. He sent Shennacherib and the rest of the Assyrians back home. And in the morning, they found slain around Jerusalem 185,000 Assyrian troops. As time went on, however, about 50 years' worth of time, as often happens with individuals, we forget lessons. We forget God's goodness. We forget His miracles. We look to the past and we remember that one time, long, long time ago, we walked with God, but no more. And the, the nation became corrupt. 
There were a few kings. One was named Manasseh. The Bible describes him as the wickedest man who ever lived. And his son Ammon, who brought back the idolatrous worship system of the Canaanites and the Ammonites. After both of them came an interesting fellow by the name of Josiah. In fact, I think he's mentioned here. Let's see. The word of the Lord which came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, the king of Judah. Josiah was interesting because he became king when he was eight years old. That's frightening. My son is about six years old. And I think, imagine ruling a kingdom. I mean, you'd have a lot of fun. You could, I suppose, have any toy you wanted at any time you wanted it. But the idea that an eight-year-old would sit upon the throne. The good thing about that is that he was influenced by godly people. And when he was 16 years of age, he decided, I'm going to follow God with all of my heart. You know, to me, it's wonderful when young people Of course, I call them young people now that I'm getting a little bit older. But when a person who is in their teenage years and early 20s and so forth make commitments to the Lord. Uh, Somebody came up to me recently, and um, and it was a a couple months ago, and they were asking about some kind of, I forget exactly where it was, here or California or somewhere. And we mentioned the people that came forward and the children that came forward. And one of them said, oh, like 14 and a half came forward meaning half being the child. And I remembered back to the words of Dwight L. Moody when after a, an altar call at his church in Chicago, he said, well, honey, how many came to know Christ tonight? He said, two and a half. She said, oh, two adults and one child? He said, no, two children, one adult. Because that child has his whole life now to give to God. That adult has wasted half of it on the devil. He's only got half to give. When a, when a young person comes to grips with who Jesus is, the potential... The older you get, you get more set in your ways, more stubborn in your ways, and you're less apt to turn and make significant choices. Most choices made for Jesus Christ are made when you're a teenager. Josiah made a a turning to God. And in the 18th year, he decided to command that the temple would be rebuilt in Jerusalem because it was in ruins. So he sent a guy by the name of Shaphan, a scribe, and said, go tell Hilkiah the priest, get the money in the treasury boxes of the temple and pay the workers to restore the temple. So they did. As they were building up the temple that was destroyed, they found a scroll of the law of God. It had been long lost. And Shaphan the scribe told King Hezekiah, and he read it in his presence, or told uh, Josiah. Josiah tore his clothes And he wept and he said, oh, we've got to pray that God will not bring upon us all the curses promised in the law for those who forsake him. And we have forsaken him. So he said, go pray. So they went to a lady by the name of Huldah, a prophetess. And she and these guys had a little prayer meeting and Huldah came back and said, you go tell Josiah that God will destroy this place, but not for a while. Because his heart was tender and he wept And he tore his clothes and he was humble. I will spare him. But after he's gone and he's at peace in his grave, then will I destroy this place. So during this time that Zephaniah writes, 
They've had a background of idolatry and wickedness, but Josiah has started some religious reforms, spiritual revival, in a sense, is happening, though it has not taken to the whole nation. The Assyrians have been wiped out. In fact, the Assyrian Empire is about to completely crumble up in Nineveh at the time this is being written. But the Babylonians are flexing their muscles, and they're starting to come down into Judah. And the theme of Zephaniah is that God will judge thoroughly the nations of the world. God will judge His people. But in the end, God will save His people. Um, it is not a familiar book. I doubt many of you have heard messages out of Zephaniah. Though I would say that Zephaniah is a prophet of love. Now, as you read this, you may think, I don't think so. It doesn't sound too loving when God says, I'm going to smoke you. And you're going to eat dust. Yet... God, in the midst of this, has such wonderful language of love and a promise of restoration. I want to cheat and skip ahead over to chapter 3. And look at verse 17. If you probably know any verse in this book, it's this one. The Lord your God in your midst, the Mighty One, will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with His love. He will rejoice over you with singing. I like to look at Zephaniah as one commentator called it, the dark side of love. Let me tell you a little story. In a large suburb of New York City, there was a child laying in her bed. And a shadow of a, a man came close to the bed with a stern look on his face, bent down to look at the child, the child screamed at the top of her lungs. He quickly moved back and the mother came in and held the little child and comforted. That man went into another room and got on the phone and talked about this little child to what we might call an accomplice. A plan was being formulated. He quickly rushed into the room where the child was, took the child, snatched her from her mother's arms, ran outside into a car that was waiting outside with the motor running and rushed off in the dark. Sometime later, they pulled up to this ominous building that was completely dark except one lit room up in top. And this man rushed the child upstairs to another man, the man he had spoken with on the phone. The man that he'd spoken with on the phone grabbed the child and put her in the room. And with the help of a woman plunged a knife into the abdomen of the little child. You say, how cruel. I hope they catch the people that did that. No, that is a story of love. Tender love. Because the man was the child's father. And on the phone he was talking to the doctor at the local hospital. The child was crying because of a sharp pain in the right lower quadrant of the abdomen. The doctor said if it gets too bad, rush her to the hospital, which he did. Took her into that lighted surgical suite and in an act of wonderful love took a scalpel after making a sterile field and operated on the child and saved her life. Love is expressed in different ways. Love is expressed when you give kids a toy, when you hug them. And sometimes love is expressed when you put a scalpel to their, to their abdomen to remove an inflamed appendix. 
Though if the child would look at that knife coming, could say, Daddy, you don't love me. Daddy loves the little baby. God is a divine surgeon, a great physician. And He knows when to give us things that make us laugh and smile. And He knows when to prescribe painful times to take away disease that's in our life. Ruptured spiritual appendices. And God does that to the nation of Israel through captivity to turn them back to Him. I would like to read a little poem that I found that I've written here in my Bible about God's love in sorrow, in affliction. Is there no other way, O God, except through sorrow, pain, and loss to stamp Christ's likeness on my soul? No other way except the cross. And then a voice stills all my soul, as stilled the waves of Galilee. Canst thou not bear the furnace if midst the flames I walk with thee? I bore the cross, I know its weight. I drank the cup I hold for thee. Canst thou not follow where I lead? I give thee strength, lean hard on me. The scripture says, whom the Lord loves, he chastens. Jesus said, every branch in me that is bearing forth fruit, the Father prunes (laughs) that it might bear forth more fruit. If a tree had a mouth and had a mind to think out these things, what would it say when you would walk up to it with this huge sheer scissors to cut off a branch and to prune it? Say, no, wait, stop. I promise to be a good tree. I'll bear more fruit. You know it can't unless it's pruned. You're not trying to hurt the tree. You're trying to have the tree produce much more fruit. God's love in some circles is emphasized to the point where it is seen as a weakness instead of a strength. God has love. God assures us of His love. His love is strong. And God knows when to give us those clever little toys and when to put the knife to our abdomen. And that's kind of basically the story of the the book of Zephaniah. Charles Spurgeon told a wonderful story one time about a farmer in the British community who on his weather vane painted, God is love. Spurgeon said, what do you mean by that? You mean that God's love is shifting like the winds? He says, no, I mean that in whatever direction the weather vane points in or the wind is blowing, God is love. doesn't matter. Whichever way the wind blows, God is love. You may be at a time of your life where you're experiencing tropical breezes, and it's great. You've never had it better. God's blessing you, prospering you. You're happy. Your family's together. You're in an upswing And you're going, praise the Lord, God loves me. Only to soon turn around and have a cold, fierce wind blow over your soul in the form of some trial. You may in the future be tempted to question God's love. Don't do it. God will bring you through a period, but in the end, just like in the end of this book, God assures you that His purpose is intact. And that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. There's a couple themes as we go through this book. And we're going to highlight just a few verses tonight and and just finish the book. Probably won't read every verse. I'll just tell you what those verses reflect. One theme is the theme of God's judgment in love. It is expressed in a phrase, the day of the Lord, which appears seven times in this book. It is a phrase that is used more in this book than any other time. It's a day of punishment. 
it reflects not only the Babylonians coming in, but it speaks of the future, what we would call eschatologically, peering with the telescope into the end of time when God in the tribulation period will judge the earth for wickedness. If, if history were like a train and the prophets were conductors yelling off the stops, Zephaniah would be saying, judgment coming, last stop, everyone off. And Zephaniah predicts a judgment that will come upon the whole earth. Let's look at it. The word of the Lord which came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, and all the other ayahs, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, the king of Judah. I will utterly consume all things from the face of the land, says the Lord. I will consume man and beast. I will consume the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, and the stumbling blocks along with the wicked. I will cut off man from the face of the land, says the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off every trace of Baal from this place. The names of the idolatrous priests with the pagan priests, those who worship the hosts of heaven on the housetops, those who worship and swear oaths by the Lord, but who also swear by Milcom, another word for Molech. Judah had backslidden. In her midst was the temple. If you wanted to find a copy of the Bible, it was in Jerusalem. Where was the place that God established His name? Jerusalem. And yet she had turned from favor with God to where she incurred the wrath of God because she was just so totally living in idolatry. There's a process by which nations fall. They decline. And you can see this with every favored nation that falls backward from worshiping God. First of all, it begins with spiritual apostasy. A nation falls away from the worship of God. And I think this nation is a perfect example of that. Now we think, this is a Christian nation. Baloney, it's a Christian nation. It's a godless nation. We say in God we trust, but that's just a figurehead on our coins. We don't really trust the Lord as a nation. It was founded upon certain principles. We have strayed from those principles as Israel did in the past. Secondly, after spiritual apostasy comes moral decline. Because you don't have a standard a base of authority. You start doing your own thing, as Israel did. Every man does what is right in his own eyes. You become very humanistic, very existential. There's no absolute basis for authority. You hear things like, well, that's cool for you, man, but don't try to push your trip on me about God. I'm not into God like you are. In fact, my picture of God is this, very different from what your picture of God is. So every man just sort of does what is right in his own eyes and creates God in his own image. And finally, you have political anarchy. You have a loss of leadership. And people will vote into office. Actually, there will be no strong leaders. I'd like to read to you what, what a secular historian by the name of Gibbon wrote concerning why Rome fell as a nation. Listen very carefully. See if, if this has any bearing on today. Number one, the undermining of the dignity and the sanctity of the home which is the basis of human society. Number two, higher and higher taxes, the spending of public money for free bread and circuses for the populace. 
Three, the mad craze for pleasure. Sports becoming every year more exciting, more brutal, more immoral. Four, the building of great armaments when the great enemy was within the decay of individual responsibility. And five, the decay of religion, fading into mere form, losing touch with life, losing power to guide the people. That's why Rome fell. It fell from within, not from without. Israel fell from the same reason. And our country is vastly going down that track. Verse 5 speaks about those who worship the hosts of heaven on their housetops. Idolatry had actually come into the home, not just the temples and the hillsides. The Israeli homes had flat roofs, very much like architecture in this part of the country. The family would go up and use the top of their home, however. The rooftop was a time to retire in the evening and just hang out with the family and just relax. In fact, the law said that you are to build a railing around the top of your home so that no one would be fallen, fall off of it and you'd be held responsible. And so what people were doing during this time is using the roofs of their houses, which was meant for relaxation, to worship the constellations, the zodiac, the sun, the moon, the stars, in the home. Those who worship and swear oaths by the Lord. The problem was is that people were still going to church, claiming that they love Jehovah God, but worshiping the other gods. It's called syncretism. You claim to be a Christian, and yet you weave into the fabric of your Christianity pagan worship or immorality, like many people who come to church today and claim to be believers, but they do absolutely anything they want, and they're interested in churchianity, not Christianity. They don't want Jesus to rule over their lives. They don't want to submit to His loving authority. And yet they'll swear oaths. Oh, praise God, man. Hallelujah, brother. Well, they go off and commit immoral acts and live any way they want. Who also swear by Molech, Milcom, the god of the Ammonites across the river, who was worshipped by sacrificing children. As Molech would be heated up, his arms red hot in the fires, they would place their babies upon him and they would fry to death. That was practiced in Israel around Jerusalem. Those who have turned back from following the Lord have not sought the Lord nor inquired of Him. Those people who once worshipped God, who once followed God, now turning back from the Lord. They thought that obedience was too restrictive. They wanted freedom and liberty. You're not going to rule over us. I'm not going to have anyone control my life. I'm in charge of my life. I make my own decisions. I'm a man. A man doomed for judgment following God, living at that high peak of fellowship, but now in rebellious rebellion against Him. Be silent. In the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is at hand. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has invited His guests. You know who the guests were? The Chaldeans. The Iraqis. Do you remember during the war what Saddam Hussein called the, the prisoners of war? He called them guests. They were guests held under His authority against the guests' own will. Well, God says, I'm going to bring some guests. I'm going to sacrifice you like a meal, Jerusalem, Judea, and I'm going to bring the Iraqis in, the Chaldeans. They're going to be my guests for the feast against you. 
And it shall be in the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes and the king's children and all such as are clothed with foreign apparel. You know, clothing is interesting. Clothing trends are fascinating. Clothing usually is a statement or an orientation of the direction of that person, that person's outlook and philosophy in life many times. They were bringing in the wear, the fabric, the clothing styles of the pagans around them, the foreign worship system, becoming so much like them, wearing their, even their clothes. In the same day I will punish all those who leap over the threshold and fill their master's houses with violence and deceit. Those who are swift to leave their house and plunder the house of the poor is what he's speaking about. There will be on that day, says the Lord, the sound of a mournful cry from the fish gate, a wailing from the second quarter, a loud crashing from the hills. Wail, you inhabitants of Maktesh, for the merchant peoples are cut down and all who handle money are cut off. That's what he's speaking of. The fish gate is the present-day Damascus gate, facing north, where fish was brought in from the Jordan River and the Sea of Galilee for the city. Maktesh is a depression in the city of Jerusalem called the Tyropean or the Cheesemaker's Valley, where Jerusalem goes down to the present-day Wailing Wall, Western Wall. In the ancient times, they had merchandise that was sold there. There will be a wailing there, God says. You won't be making money any longer because you'll be in captivity. And it will come to pass at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish the men who are settled in complacency, who say in their heart, the Lord will not do good, nor will He do evil. These are people who say, God is not involved. I can do whatever I want. God won't do anything good. He won't do anything bad. He won't do anything at all. I can do anything I want. Why speak of God? And they became complacent. Do you remember when the Magi came to Jerusalem searching for Christ? And they asked the high priest where the Messiah was to be born? The priests were able to tell them. He's going to be born in Bethlehem, as the prophet says, Micah 5, 2. But you, Bethlehem, in Judah. And they quoted the Scripture. Yet, though they could quote the Scripture, and the wise guy, the wise men had come all the way from the east to search out the child, seeing the star, these guys were so complacent. They didn't even go to Bethlehem four and a half miles away to see if this thing was true. Yeah, Word of God's great. Oh, I'm tired, you know, oh. Too busy for that. They become complacent. The Word of God didn't move them any longer. They could care less. They'd lost their spiritual appetite, their spiritual love. They say in their heart, the Lord will not do good, nor he will, will He do evil. Verse 14, The great day of the Lord is near. It is near, and it hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, sort of a day like today, actually. A day of the trumpet and the alarm against the fortified cities and the high towers. The day of the Lord is spoken about in a twofold sense in the Scripture. I, I want to just briefly cover it because we've gone over it in the book of Joel. You could sort of look at the prophets in the Old Testament like holding up a couple different lenses. You look up through one lens 
And the first lens is the Babylonian captivity. But you can see through that lens to another event. That is the final judgment of God upon this this world called the Great Tribulation period. The day of the Lord has those two aspects in view, a local, imminent kind of a thing and a far-reaching one. Zephaniah, as well as Joel, speak of God judging the entire earth, not just Jerusalem, but all of the nations, all of the earth, because they rejected and turned away from God. After Josiah, man, the nation really went downhill quick. There was Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachim, Zedekiah. All of them were raunchy kings. They did nothing for the nation. They turned away from God. They relied on military strength, which bought them no time. The Babylonians finally destroyed them and defeated them. And the nation just completely went downhill. Um, And uh, this is what this is uh, alluding to, the day of the Lord through the Babylonian captivity. In verse 16, a day of trumpet and alarm against the fortified cities and against the high towers. During the wilderness march... The children of Israel made trumpets. In fact, God said, make trumpets and use them as alarm clocks. Sort of like the PA system. We can get on a PA system and get everybody's attention in this auditorium. In ancient times, they didn't have it. They had trumpets. And God says, when you go to war, as a nation comes against you to oppress you, and you sound the trumpet for war, the Lord will hear and will move on your behalf to deliver you. Now God is saying... It's a day of trumpet and alarm against the fortified cities and against the high towers. I won't deliver you from the enemy. I'll deliver you to the enemy as you sound your trumpets. I will bring distress upon men. They shall walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like refuse. Neither their their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. But the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy, for he will make speedy riddance of all those who dwell in the land. There will come a time, God says, when their money won't do a thing. You know, it's amazing how much money the United States, the billions of dollars we have spent to make friends with other nations. The ironic thing is, if you ever travel to these other nations, they don't like us, we're their enemies. America used to have such a favored name among nations of the world. In some places you go, you're almost ashamed to say you're from America because they'll scowl at you, shake their fist at you, even spit at you. There comes a time when the, the money doesn't buy any more favor. Now, by the wording of this chapter, this sounds extreme. In fact, it sounds depressing. Your blood's going to flow. You've had it. You've become complacent. Yet... Whom the Lord loves, He chastens. You know, I remember a time when I was in the hospital. My wife was out of town. My son was out of town. And one night I had a sharp pain in my abdomen. And I I just waited it out through the evening. I thought it was something I had eaten and it just didn't go away. It got worse and worse and worse. So I finally called one of my friends, my assistant, and said, could you please take me to the hospital? I got into the emergency room late at night. They ran tests, didn't find anything wrong. The next day, they, I, they made me stay in a room. They washed me for several days doing all sorts of tests. I mean, hospitals, man, are not places to rest. Now, I used to work in them, but being a patient is a whole other ball game. They gave me an upper GI. 
they gave me a thing called a barium enema. When I was having that thing, I thought of the words of Job, that which I have feared has come upon me. I thought, oh God, deliver me. Why would you allow this to happen? And my physician was a sharp gal. She was a crack surgeon. She came into me and she said, Mr. Heitzig, we've run blood tests on you for several days. You have an incredibly high white blood count. And I know what that means. It means there's an infection in there somewhere. She said, we've done all these tests. We can't find it. If it doesn't go away by tomorrow morning, I'm going to cut you open and I'm going to look around. I don't know what I'll find, but I'm going to look around. I've checked you out on the outside. I've checked you with x-ray. But now I'm just going to look at you on the, in the inside. Pull out your guts. See what's in there. See what the problem is. I just said, all right. I'm at your mercy. But I was really at God's mercy. I prayed my heart out that night. Called a bunch of people and said, pray, pray, pray. And God, they prayed. My white count went down and I was released the next day. But when the doctor said, I'm going to cut you open, I could have said, why, don't you love me? I mean, what did I do to you? But the doctor was after my best interest. Wanted to save me from that infection growing into perhaps a ruptured appendix which could kill me momentarily. God was acting in severe love. I'm going to cut you open. The blood will flow. You will go into captivity. I will rid you through this of all of your idolatry. And in the end, you'll come back. And toward the end, he says, The Lord your God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will rest in his love or quiet you with his love. Well, chapter 2 is a chapter that not only speaks of uh, Judah, but all of the nations of the world that God will judge. And we're not going to look at all the verses, but um, notice that the first part of this is a call to repentance. The Bible says God is not willing that any should perish. And so he says, Gather yourselves together. Yes, gather together, O undesirable nation. The idea is gathering together for a religious convocation, kind of like a national day of prayer to turn back to God. Before the decree is issued, before the day passes like chaff, before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you, seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth, who have upheld His justice. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. It may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Seek God. You who are meek. Meekness, well, some person described meekness is by saying just divide up the word and you've gotten the idea. Me, ech. It's the idea not of self-abasement necessarily as much as the opposite of saying I must have my own way, I must live with my own rights and do what I want and have control over my life. The opposite of that is meekness, is living under the control of God. Strength under His control. Seek the Lord. God says. It could be that God will hide you from His anger. Now we know prophetically that when God breaks out upon this world in tribulation, the great tribulation period, that He will hide His church, take His church out of the world before the tribulation. That seems to be abundantly clear in the Scriptures. But it might be, and probably will be, that before the time He does that, we will still experience the tribulation of this world and even brush up against the judgment of God and the consequences of man's sin. It could be very tough before that time that we are hidden. There's a call to repent, a call to come back to God. 
And now there's a judgments upon uh, the nations of all the world. Um, like you to turn to chapter 3. God sort of selects all the nations around Israel, uh, bringing local as well as uh, universal ramifications to it. And uh, he starts in chapter 3, verse 1, with a woe. Woe to her who is rebellious and polluted, to the oppressing city. She has not obeyed His voice. She has not received correction. She has not trusted in the Lord. She has not drawn near to her God. Now this is denouncing the city of Jerusalem in context. And it sounds like strong language. And anytime God says, whoa, it's strong language. But you know, there's a lot of people who think, well, that's the Old Testament. The God of the New Testament isn't like that, really. Well, sometime look at Matthew chapter 23, where seven or eight times Jesus says, woe to you hypocrites. And he denounces the Pharisees and the religious people, in fact, the leaders of the nation, for turning away from God like these guys did. Same God. Her princes in her midst are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave not a bone until morning. Worldwide judgment is predicted. And now the prophet goes back to God judging His holy city, Jerusalem in particular. Why? Because there's a principle in Scripture, to whom much is given, much is required. Judgment is meted out according to the light that a person receives. And a person who has lots of revelation is held in higher accountability. You know, people often ask me, when it comes to marriage, remarriage, divorce, they said, you know what, it almost seems unfair. It's like if you're a heathen and you divorce and you come to know Christ, you can remarry and, you know, the old is gone, the new has come, all things become new. But if you're a Christian, you're held in a higher level of accountability. And you have to remain with your spouse and you can't divorce your spouse. You must reconcile or remain single. It seems, un- hey, there is a higher level. To whom much is given, much is required. So many people speak about the savages in Africa or in the jungles of India. Well, what about them? Will God judge them? Don't worry about them. God's big enough to worry about them. Folks, this might seem like a radical statement, but it's true. I would rather be a savage in Africa who had never heard the gospel than a person sitting in an American church who's heard the gospel and didn't respond to it. I'd rather be that savage come judgment day than a person who's heard the gospel and has closed his heart or her heart to the gospel. It would fare for that savage much better, I believe, who's never heard the truth than people who hear the truth and walk away from it. So God comes back to His own people. Why? She has not obeyed His voice. She has not received correction. Remember I spoke to you about Hezekiah? 185,000 Assyrians camped around Jerusalem. They got scared. They started repenting like crazy and crying out to God. 185,000 of the Assyrians were killed. Well, they didn't learn the lesson. They said, great, trouble's gone. Let's have a party. And they did that for 50-some-odd years. They They didn't receive correction. She has not trusted in the Lord. She has not drawn near to her God. Notice the leadership, verse 3. Her princes in her midst are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves. I don't want to seem too cynical, but when I read that verse, I have to think of politicians. 
Every four years, this country is interesting. We, we elect officials for such a short period of time, almost when they're just getting the experience to pull the job off. We search for somebody else. And, and every election year, you know, it's the same old song and dance. It makes it, I, I don't even want to listen to the news after a period of time. They all say the same thing. It's going to be better. If you like me, it's going to be better. People have been saying that for 5,000, 4,000 years. Hadn't gotten any better. Oh, but it's different with me. They're like roaring lions, make a lot of noise, but they don't produce. Now, that's simplistic. I, I know that the political realm, uh, no matter what you do, you know, it's a win, it's a no-win situation oftentimes. There's just, there's too many people to please. But so often the candidates, you know, it's just, they butter up their reputation just to gain the votes, and like roaring lions. <laughs> Maybe this is true of them too. They leave not a bone till morning. Her prophets are insolent. I like the old King James better. Their prophets are light. They're lightweights. They won't preach turning from sin, repentance, faith in God, faith in Christ. They'll preach the easy message. Smattering of the gospel, smattering of psychology, smattering of worldly philosophy. Put it all together. It's a feel good, be nice. It's nice to be nice. It's good to be good. So go out and be nice and be good. Thank you. Lightweight, no substance, gutless to stand up and speak the truth for fear that people will say, I didn't like the way he preached. They're lightweight, treacherous people. Her priests have polluted the sanctuary in that they brought in, uh, during the, the reign of Manasseh and Ammon, they brought in statues of Ashtoreth and Baal in the very temple of God and worshipped it. The Lord, verse 5, is righteous. He is in her midst. He will do no unrighteousness. In other words, I'm going to judge you and it's going to be righteous. Well, God, how can you be a God of love and be fair? Don't worry, it'll be right. <laughs> it'll be just. It'll be righteous. During the tribulation period, when God meets out the most horrendous judgment this world has ever seen, and there's death and there's destruction, the kind of time that people will wonder, how could God do this? The Bible says that all the saints and the hosts of heaven will say, Just and true are thy judgments, O God. For they have slain the prophets, they have shed the blood of the prophets, therefore you've required blood at their hands. We will be able to say, Oh, that's how you do it, God. Well, I agree with that. That's righteous. That's good. That's just. Verse 6 says, I have cut off nations. Their fortresses are devastated. I have made their streets desolate with none passing by. Their cities are destroyed. I've had the opportunity to travel to certain parts of the world and walk through the ruins of ancient civilizations. Now just ruins. I walked through civilization of Rome. Uh, some of the cities that the Romans built over in the Middle East. Cities that the Greeks built. Once that were inhabited with Thousands of people. Temples and streets with colonnades. And as I walk through the cities, these ruins, I think, can anybody really have lived here? But at one time it was a thriving city. We might wonder in days like this, could Los Angeles or New York ever be like that? Completely devastated, destroyed? Nah. Good. For God says, I have cut off nations. Their fortresses are devastated. Their cities are destroyed. There is no one, no inhabitant. 
verse 8. Let's get down to the uh, upswing of this. Uh, he passes from darkness and speaks of the ultimate future that God awaits for them. Therefore, wait for me, says the Lord, until the day I rise up for plunder. My determination is to gather the nations to my assembly of kingdoms, to pour out on them my indignation, all my fierce anger. The earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. For then I will restore, ah, it's a good word, to the peoples a pure language. All the confusion that happened back in Genesis at the Tower of Babel that brought the, di- the division between nations. There will be a purity of language. Some people feel this belief to, uh, refers to the Hebrew language. That they may call on the name of the Lord to serve Him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. In that day you shall not be shamed for any of your deeds in which you transgress against me. For then I will take away from your midst those people who rejoice in your pride. And you shall no longer be haughty or prideful in my holy mountain. During the time of Manasseh and Ammon and some of the other fellows, even during the time of Josiah, the sins people committed, they did without shame. They would go into the temple and say, praise God, go into the temple of Molech and sacrifice their babies. Worship Asherah, sexually, uh, sexual immorality. They had no shame. A child of God who sins is different from an unbeliever who sins. A Christian, a child of God, cannot live perpetually in that sin. He's shamed of it. The prodigal son squandered all of his money, started eating pig slop. But he woke up and he said, I've got to go to my father. And he ran back to his father in repentance. That's a child of God. Child of God can't live in slop. Pigs live in slop. It's for pigs, not for God's kids. God's kids want to go back to their father. They're not comfortable eating pig slop. They want to rush back. They're shame of face and thus repentance. God says, I'll remove it. Verse 13, The remnant of Israel shall do no unrighteousness and speak no lies, nor shall a deceitful tongue be found in her mouth, their mouth. For they shall feed their flocks and lie down, and no one shall make them afraid. Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your judgments. He has cast out your enemy. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. I can't wait. When there are no politicians, there is no Republican and Democrat party. There are no despots over in Libya and Iraq. There's one king over all the earth, a benevolent dictatorship. The king of all the earth, the Lord, will reign. and He will reign from Mount Zion. You will see disaster no more. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear, Zion, let not your hands be weak. The Lord your God in your midst, the Mighty One, will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with His love. He will rejoice over you with singing. You know, we often think about us rejoicing in God, but have you ever put the other twist on that, that God would rejoice in you and sing about you and think, oh, my kids, I love them. That you are a delight to your Father. The Bible says, 
Bless the Lord. You know, sometimes we say, oh man, God has blessed me. Or we pray, bless them, Lord. Or it's been a real blessing to me. Have you ever thought that your life is a blessing to the Father? Bless the Lord at all times. And when you live for Him and you worship Him and your life is sold out to serve Him, He rejoices over you and He will in the future. I will gather those who sorrow over the appointed assembly who are among you, to whom its reproach is a burden. Behold, at that time I will deal with all who afflict you. I will save the lame and gather those who were driven out. I will appoint them for praise and fame in every land where they were put to shame. At that time I will bring you back, even at the time I gather you, for I will give you fame and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I return your captives before your eyes, says the Lord. Let me tell you what Zephaniah is like, this book. We mentioned the analogy of the child who is suffering abdominal pain and had surgery. It's like another instance. Years ago, there was a British fleet off of the harbor called Baltimore. The British fleet was sending bombshells, firepower, into the harbor, trying to destroy the fort that protected the harbor. Everybody aboard ship thought, surely... The fort is going to fall to the British. That night, bombs went off in the air. It sounded like mass destruction had happened to the fort. But when the light of dawn came over Baltimore, the British soldiers looked out at the port and they saw the American flag waving. That inspired a man by the name of Francis Scott Key to grab a pen, writing from a a British prison ship, And he wrote the song that you have sung many times, Oh, say can you see, by the dawn's early light, what so proudly we hailed. In other words, the fort had not fallen. Though it looked like destruction, it was being bombed all night. At the twilight's last gleaming, it looked like it was all lost, but the dawn brings a whole new picture, the American flag. We won the war, that battle. God is sending bombs, so to speak, on Judah. Jerusalem, and the whole world eventually in the tribulation period. But then the day will come, the day of the Lord will end with the coming of Jesus Christ in the millennial kingdom and He'll restore the earth and His flag, His banner will be waving. You can apply that also to your own personal experiences. Whatever you are going through now as a child of God, it won't always be that way. God has a new day to dawn in your life. The affliction, the heartache, the trial, the surgery as the scalpel pierces your flesh is only for a short period of time. God has something wonderful in store. God has something wonderful in store. 